You are listening to the Wyoming Park Bible Fellowship Podcast, which comes from the Wyoming Park Bible Fellowship Church, located in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Last week, we learned about some foundational characteristics that should be present in the lives of church leaders. Today, we will look at the rest of the qualifications that we find in the Bible. It is important to know what Jesus requires of the leaders of his church. Greetings. Thank you for tuning in for this uh, second part of a two-part series on the biblical qualifications for leaders. Last week we heard from Chuck Tasma, Jordan Bilesma, and Joel Morgan. Joel was up there twice because he had two topics. And uh, this week we get to hear from Mike Carlisle, John Kopp, and Phil Bloom. And so let me pray and then we'll go ahead and get started. Father, we just thank you so much for how clear your word is. Help us to obey it. Help us to follow it and to do well, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, welcome to the first uh, topic here. I'm gonna be covering a, a few of the requirements for an elder. Uh, these are not quarrelsome, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not violent, and gentle. So before I get into this, I'd like to go ahead and read the, the scripture verse that these come from. First Timothy 3.3 3 says, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. And from Titus 1.7, it says, Not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, and not pursuing dishonest gain. So once again, these are, these are the characters that I'll be covering this morning. We'll start out with... The first one, not quarrelsome. I'm kind of an analytical person, so I'm going to start with some definitions. I'm going back to the original uh, New Testament Greek for the definition of the terms. Not quarrelsome uh, literally means abstaining from fighting or non-combatant. And if we look in Proverbs 17:14, it says, "Starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam." So we all know the story about the little Dutch boy with his finger in the dike. When a dam uh, is weakened, quite often you get this little trickle of water, but if it's not handled uh, quickly, that quickly becomes uh, a breach in the dam. So is quarreling is uh, similar to that. If you don't handle, uh, if you get into a quarrel with somebody uh, and don't handle things properly, things can get out of a hand quickly and be like breaching a dam with your relationship with that person. Proverbs 23 says, It is to one's honor to avoid strife, but every fool is quick to quarrel. So when we get into a quarrel, we also identify ourselves as fools. The second character is not overbearing, which literally means self-willed, but also means arrogant and stubborn. From Psalms 5.5, we see that it says, The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. So if we don't want to get into a position where uh, God hates the things that we do, we need to, to avoid that attribute. The th third one is not quick-tempered, which literally means not passionate, or short-fused, hot-tempered, or quick-fisted was another term that they used. In Colossians 3.8, it says, But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. 
And in Colossians 3, 1 and 2, it says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So when we, we see ourselves getting into a situation uh, with their temper, and I was one, especially when I was younger, I had kind of a short fuse. I guess that's kind of a thing I inherited from the Royston side of my family. But um, I had to learn how to control it. I didn't always do a good job of it. But as a Christian, we have other things that we need to think about. And one of them is our relationship with God. So we need to make sure that um, we stay away from uh, a short fuse or uh, being real passionate in a bad way so that we please God. The fourth attribute is not violent, which the definition of that is not pugnacious. And I'm not an English major. That word doesn't mean a whole lot to me. So I look at some of the other definitions first. It also means eager or quick to argue, quarrel or fight. Literally, it means not a striker. And some of the um, versions of the Bible include not a striker in, in the text. Pugnacious, uh, the definition of that is belligerent, given to fighting, having a quarrelsome or combative nature, confrontational, argumentative, aggressive, combative, or scrappy. So occasionally I've seen um, versions of the Bible where in Timothy 3.3, 3, where it says uh, in our text, not violent, they've um, interpreted that as not a bully, which um, actually in both cases, the same Greek word is used, which means not a striker or not violent. So we have to know uh, the definition of the terms as we go through them to make sure we're, we're not undercutting the meaning of the verse. Bullying can take on many nonviolent forms, such as slander or malice, spoken against in Colossians. Or it can take on a form of just antagonizing or ridiculing someone to make them feel small or unimportant. It's not a quality that any Christian should hold to, let alone someone in church leadership. Slander and malice, uh, additionally, both seek to desire injury or harm to another or to their reputation. Neither of these is the attribute that we should hold to. In Matthew 5.21, it says, If you have, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. So it doesn't take a physical form um, in every case to do sin. But even if you're just angry, if it's in your mind, you're also guilty of the same sin. The qualifications for elder or deacon, for that matter, uh, or every Christian, are actually very similar. So before we make this mistake and think that those appointed or desiring the elder position have a unique set of rules to follow, think about the requirements we've heard about so far in Colossians and Matthew. We should all strive to avoid these sins. The overseers are just more accountable as the visual leadership of the church. And finally, I want to talk about 
the attribute of being gentle. The definition of this word, thankfully, is gentleness. Um, but also uh, definitions are seemingly equitable, fair, and moderate. But in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. So gentleness is actually one of the fruits of the Spirit. These are things that we should hold to and we should practice. But gentleness does not mean weakness or cowardness. Elders must be gentle giants. They must be willing to face any situation and be able to turn away wrath with a gentle word, responding in grace. Ephesians 4.26 verses, uh, and verses 31-32 says, In your anger, anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, which is a term we've already heard about, along with every form of malice. Other verses concerning God, the godly character for every Christian comes from the book of James, chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Some additional verses that we see out of the Bible talking about these attributes is Proverbs 19.11b, where it says, Wisdom yields patience, its glory to overlook an offense. And Proverbs 15, it says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh, harsh word stirs up anger. So we can see again, that's a follow-up to one of the attributes we were talking about earlier. But if you're thinking of, of or you're, desire to be an elder or you're being asked to be an elder there's three questions that you should ask yourself am i gentle or heavy-handed am i a peacemaker or a fire starter do i listen well or talk over others to express my opinions answering negative to any or all of these questions should result in repentance and a change of heart for any christian we should all exemplify the positive character attributes. We should all pass the character requirements for an elder or deacon for, an, if no, for no other reason but to please God. Thank you for coming and listening to us, uh, some of us more experienced than others, and I'm gonna have to thank Mike for some of the things he covered because they have uh, a good application to what I'm gonna be talking about, which is your family life. So I'm going to read this verse first. It kind of gives us a broad picture of some of the things we are, and I'm going to come back to it a little bit later, but I'm just going to read it now. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. We see <clears throat> also uh, he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? And as I read, especially in verse 4, how he's supposed to manage his family well, this 
To me, I was thinking there's three reasons for that, and this is obviously the first one. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? Which means to say that if his family is out of control or if his children are out of control, uh, what can you expect to see in an elder when he is supposed to be managing a church or at least managing a group of people within the church? Will he actually do what an elder is supposed to do? <clears throat> but I thought of a couple other reasons why he should do it. One of them is he needs to be an example to the rest of the church as to how a family should operate. Should, you know, how can you control a family? If he's going to encourage other families to do what is right, he needs to be doing what is right. And also it's an example and a witness to the rest of the world, to his community when he goes out. If he has a good family and his children are well behaved and people can respect him because of the way his family operates, that's a good witness for the world and it may give him an opportunity to share why his family is good because it is because of the grace of God working in his life. First Timothy 3.2, we get back to this one again. It points out that he needs to be faithful to his wife. And again in Titus 1.6, he's faithful to his wife. Ephesians 5.31 and 32 is to me a good verse that I was thinking about <clears throat> for this. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So why should a man be faithful to his wife and be dedicated to her? Well, Christ himself is dedicated to the church. We can read in, in Romans where he says, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ that is in Christ Jesus. Absolutely nothing. So a man should be dedicated in that same way. And... <clears throat> There's more time than what we have today to go over everything in 531 uh, and 30, chapter Ephesians 5 because it talks about the relationship between a husband and wife and how that should work. So really, I only want to cover a couple of things here <clears throat> because Christ is dedicated to the church. The husband should be dedicated to his wife. He needs to seek <clears throat> to lead like Christ. He's not a domineering man but he bleeds with a servant's heart. We see the example of that in the, is Christ is uh, in the Last Supper when he washed the disciples' feet. He did something that a servant would normally do, and that's the way we want uh, to see a man who is married to be dealing with his family and leading him. Christ also provides both physically and spiritually for the church, and especially in that spiritual realm, a man should be doing that as well. He should be faithful in providing spiritually and physically for his family, for his wife. <clears throat> 1 Timothy 3, 4, he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. He must, not do, he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. Uh, and then in Ephesians 6, 4, Father says, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. <clears throat> so when we're talking about children, we obviously know that not <laughs> children, no child is perfect. Let's put it this way. No child is perfect. There's going to be times when they disobey. There's going to be times when they need to be disciplined and things like that. How does a father do that? Well, a father does not want to exasperate his children 
So he can exasperate his children by being harsh in his discipline, by being inconsistent in his discipline, or not having a husband and wife in agreement. Uh, and I've seen that. I've seen children that are disobedient and not good. And then when I've seen the dynamics between a husband and his wife and their children, I can see why, because the, they are not consistent in their discipline and their rules for the kids. And so they learn how to play the system. Uh, kids are smart. They really know how to play the system as far as uh, if one parent won't let them do it, but the other one will, they obviously go to the one that says yes. And then, then you've got conflict between husband and wife. And you don't want that. You don't want to see that in an elder's family. They want, they want to be in control and on the same page. And the word of God makes the husband, whether we like it or not, he makes us the leader in the home. And so God has established that, and so we should be trying to follow that, and part of that is in the way we raise our children. Discipline needs to be firm, uh, be gentle hand, but firm, and there's a goal in discipline, and there's a goal in, in teaching, too. And when we teach our children, there's a goal of passing on my faith, passing on the, my faith to my children. And that's important in that, one of the things that I learned over time, and the first time I heard this, it was, you know, this is thought-provoking. A child gets his first picture of God from his father. How does the uh, Lord's Prayer start? Our Father who art in heaven. So if they've learned that, okay, that's God, that's my Father, uh, they should be somehow related and uh, it's hard if a father is absent, if he's angry all the time, uh, and things like that, emotionally absent. Uh, that's the way the children are going to get their first picture. So you need to think about how do I want my children to understand God? And that should be your goal, really goal. And we also talk, talks about training and teaching. I want to do Deuteronomy eleven nineteen. This was another verse that was a real challenge to me. Uh, when when I was first married and we first started having children, it says, teach, after talking about the law, uh, Moses writes what they're supposed to do with this. He says, teach, it, teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at, the, at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. And so this is what uh, you want them, you want to be able to teach your children all of the time. Uh, hopefully in your home you have a specific time for your time of devotion. For us it was right after supper, age appropriate, very short, but then we took opportunities when we had the opportunity and we had a teachable moment. Uh, either Marie or myself would want to bring in our faith and the scripture and what God has to say about a, any particular situation. Now, not all elders have to be married. In fact, as far as we know, uh, neither Paul nor Timothy were married. They are not spoken of being married. So we're making the assumption that they were not. And so what if uh, you have a single person who wants to be an elder or is asked to be an elder? Uh, <clears throat> how do we look, what do we look for them? 
And this actually will apply to both single and married elders, but specifically a single one because you don't have the family dynamic to look at. And 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2 says, Do not rebu rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. And so what we're looking at is what is a potential elder and a person wanting to be an elder, what is his relationship with the people in his generation or in his congregation, excuse me, within his congregation? Uh, does he treat older men respectfully? Younger women, older women, uh, how does he treat them? How does he look at them? And so, and then especially when you're looking at how does he treat women, does he treat them respectfully? And is he in all purity towards them? And so this is what we would want to see, somebody who is, who is showing respect to people within his congregation and treating them well, as well as trying to lead them, obviously, spiritually, because that's one of his roles. <clears throat> And then we're also going to talk about, and uh, you can see this in families, but also in your single people. He says, now an overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, or hospitable, I guess is mine. And so <clears throat> that hospitable, uh, I thank Mike for this, because he found these definitions and uh, so I won't worry about the Greek or anything, but chose where it's used. But this term comes from the combination of stranger and lover, hence stranger lover. And when I read that, it reminded me of what I've heard and read about in far as the culture in the Middle East area and Arab countries is that when a person, say a person is walking down a road and they need a thirst and they come to a house, they can go into it, knock on the door, and it's expected for those people to be hospitable by letting them in and giving them what they need, a drink of water, something to eat, whatever, even staying the night. That's what is expected of them. So it's a stranger accepting strangers. So an elder should be a person who is willing to get up and, and meet new people, or if you're in a larger congregation from time to time, get around and talk to people that you don't know, get to know them, learn something about them. Um, I always am envious of people that can remember names real well, Darwin being one of them, because we have 30 some kids on a regular basis at Attic and he knows all their names. I don't, and I've been there four years, but just at least trying to get to know them and learning about them. That's what they should be doing. It also would be, are they willing to open their home to people from the church to come in or friends? Do they, do they have people over? Uh, if it's possible, obviously, if you live in a small apartment, that's not going to happen. But if you have a place big enough, is a person willing to have people over? have a party, have a Bible study, whatever, even a single person. My son, when he lived in Florida and worked for Campus Crusade, was known to have the best uh, Super Bowl party at Campus Crusade. So he always had a group of people over for there. So they need to be willing to, to serve, okay? So in review, we need uh, an elder 
A married elder needs to be faithful to his wife and seek to build a home on the gospel of Jesus Christ and teaching and leading his family with the goal of passing on his own faith. A single elder needs to have a good relationship with the men and women in his congregation and both should be friendly and willing to share his home and life for the furtherance of the gospel in his church and in his community. So thank you for listening, and I'm going to pass this on to Phil. The qualifications uh, for an elder can seem daunting, but the one qualification uh, providing a great deal of discomfort is apt to teach. As an adjunct professor, I, I witness a cringe when students are asked to make a presentation in class. But this cringe is nothing compared to the individual who's getting up uh, to speak in front of the congregation and give an oratory on their faith experience. And I personally had a situation where I'll never forget the first module, one of the first modules I taught, Principles of Self-Management in Business. And uh, uh, I don't mean to put myself down or anything, but when you're talking about teaching something to students, uh, you know, you know, we've all mastered uh, self-management, right? And so I thought to myself, boy, I don't know if I want to say like Paul, imitate me. But uh, nonetheless, uh, it ended up being a great class and we all learned. But uh, this qualification of apt to teach is not meant to instill fear but rather it's meant to open the leader to the effective shepherding of the flock or congregation. Another qualification for an elder that can be difficult to assess is not a novice. And how do we grasp this when we have the Pauline expression, let no man despise your youth? Well, the term novice isn't necessarily age-related, but does refer to the broader concept of maturity. And so uh, I'm hoping that in our discussion, uh, we can focus on uh, three areas that will help us recognize uh, an, a, per, a person's ability to teach and recognize if a person is a novice. 1 Timothy 3.2 says, Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. And down in verse 6, um, he must not be a recent convert, he may be, or he may become conceited and fall under the same, same judgment as the devil. Titus 1.9 says, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. The first area I want to look at is recognition of God's authority. Uh, and this, was a, this is a concept that I think Paul and Timothy, of any of them, of any of the things we're going to look at, this is the one that was foundational to their experience. And it comes down to God made us alive. In Ephesians 2, 4 to 5, 
Uh, Paul said, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And we must keep in the back of our minds reading this, as these are words that would not have been strange to Timothy, because he may have even been in Ephesus at the time Paul wrote that letter. And, may, and Timothy may have even read it to the church. But, uh, um, the, you know, we've heard Pastor John say quite often, you know, he, you know, his, I love this approach to uh, this little outline. We lost it all. God did it all. We get it all. And in terms of our salvation and faith, uh, well, certainly God did it all. And this is what this verse speaks to. And I think it's a concept that sometimes is lost, especially on a novice or a person that is going to teach. You tend to think that you've got to give it from your heart and it's got to be you. And sometimes we even lose sight of the fact that we're not up in front of people based on anything we've done, but we're in front of, in front and we're leading people based on what God has done. And so God made us alive. The second uh, element is God provided a heritage of faith. So God not only made us alive, that he provided a heritage of faith, and especially for Timothy. He said in 2 Timothy 1.5, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure it is in you as well. Uh, uh, Timothy realized that God did it all, but he saw it lived out in people that he grew up around, in adults. And so he had an idea, or at least a concept, of how he needed to live. So God uh, made us alive, and uh, he has provided He provided a heritage, and it's that same God opens the door for service. In the first chapter of the letter to Timothy, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was previously a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. So, in, recog in a recognition of God's authority, uh, God made us alive. He did it all. Uh, he provided the heritage uh, of faith for Timothy, and was also responsible for, for opening the door for service. The second element that we have to recognize is the recognition of truth. Being able to teach, uh, we're not relying on ourselves to give people truth, but uh, uh, truth is foundational. Uh, God's, words, God's word stands against strange doctrine. Uh, right in verse 3, early in the letter, uh, Timothy is urged to stay in Ephesus so that you would instruct certain people not to teach strange doctrines. So the truth 
of God's word immediately is the tool to use to fight uh, those uh, strange things, those strange philosophies that people are going to come up with. And uh, we don't have to worry about necessarily producing the good arguments, but if we know scripture and if we can give God's word, uh, we are able uh, to stand against false doctrine and teach truth. Uh, God's salvation provides knowledge of the truth. Whoops. Uh, in 1 Timothy 2, 4, Paul wrote uh, about, uh, uh, about uh, Christ, who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I was, I was struck here by the relationship of people being saved and as a result being able to recognize truth. I think sometimes in our evangelism we kind of get it backwards. We try to give truth and then hopefully get people saved. But uh, here Paul makes a relationship between getting people saved and that salvation being the tool of recognizing truth. So, uh, God's word stands against uh, strange doctrines. It's the recognition of truth that in, uh, is foundational. Uh, salvation is going to allow is going to bring people to a place where they can see the truth for themselves. And then a recognition of maturity. God's word portrays the individual's character. Again. Right in the first chapter of the epistle of Timothy, before getting into the qualifications, uh, Paul wrote, But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. And those are all concepts of a mature uh, believer. God's word informs us how to live. After giving the qualifications of an elder, uh, Paul writes, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one should act in the household of God, which is the church of the living God and the pillar and support of the truth. So Paul is saying here that he gives the instruction of the qualifications for the elder so that Timothy can know how people should act in, amongst the people of God. So God's word portrays the individual's character and God's word informs us how to live. As I was studying the, just the general concept of teaching and uh, perusing uh, different definitions, uh, the International Standard Bible uh, Encyclopedia uh, provided this insight. The central thought of teaching is causing one to learn. Teaching and learning are not scholastic, but dynamic and imply personal relationship and activity in the acquisition of knowledge. And so as a leader, I'm just not supposed, I'm not supposed to just uh, give out information or just stand up 
be the person espousing truth and leave it at that. My, the, uh, the ability to teach is the willingness to involve myself in the life of, the, of another person so that they can acquire knowledge of the truth that I have gleaned. And uh, during doing this will enable us to be an encouragement uh, to a model of faith, a monitor of well-being. This implies church leaders will be accountable. People will be able to see if we are living, if what we are living matches our words. And people will see the impact of God's authority, our commitment to truth, and to maturity of our faith, and be inspired to leadership. These areas will also enable us to recognize the novice. The novice will likely shy away from authority and fail to be accountable. The novice will not desire will not desire truth, but be tempted to espouse the latest trends. Novices will demonstrate immaturity by not growing in a disciplined life. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for sharing with us about those important things. Again, the reason for this series is twofold, really. One of them is to have you as our church get to know our elders better and to understand where they're coming from. It's a real pleasure and a delight to be able to see them study God's Word and share it with you. But the other reason is to inform you as our congregation the kinds of characteristics and qualities that we need to, we need to look for when we are going to call from among our number people who will be the leaders of our church. And so as you um, consider the candidates that we're going to vote on in May, and as those are presented to you, and if you are a potential candidate, as you consider those things, we want to encourage you to ask God to examine your heart and to give you wisdom as you discern your own heart, if you're a candidate, or to discern God's will for our church as you look at the lives of those who we are asking you to affirm as our church leaders. And so I just appreciate you all being involved in this. And I would like to see this become some, some sort of a um, annual or at least every other year kind of tradition that we would have this opportunity to hear from our elders at least once a year. So let's pray and we'll close. Father, thank you so much for the perfect person, the Lord Jesus, who himself was in all these areas um, without fault, without blame. He never failed. He never ceased to be a perfect uh, shepherd for his sheep, the perfect elder for his family. And so we really... We, 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 excuse me, we really just want to imitate him. We want the Lord Jesus' life to flow through us so much. We want to abide in him so that his person and his grace bears fruit in our lives. And so we thank you for that privilege. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. For more information about our church, online resources, and in-person services, please check out our website, wpbiblefellowship.org. In the meantime, keep your eyes on Jesus and may you grow in his grace.